Um, the last number of weeks, we as a church family have been um, traveling together through the scriptures and we've been studying prayer. And um, I, I hope for you it has been a challenge. I hope for you it's been an encouragement. Um, I hope it is leading you and prompting you to pray like never before in your life. Um, you know, the reality about prayer is that it can often cause tension in our life, right? It can cause frustration. It can cause confusion when the things that we're praying for, the results we're hoping to see don't really come the way that we had imagined or hoped or wanted them to be. It can be something that we just throw into our lives ritualistically. We do just more out of habit than really out of concentrated effort. Prayer can be a... Prayer can be a tricky thing, even for someone who's been praying for a long time. I came across an interesting uh, survey this week where a Christian reader asked visitors to their website to, um, to rate when they prayed most often. And these were the results um, that, that they found on their website. 48%, sorry, 45% of people said they prayed whenever the Spirit prompted them. 23% said at bedtime. 18% in the morning, 11% during the morning commute, with their eyes open, I'm sure, 1% before meals. Now, as I came across this, I just, you know, I found it interesting for a couple reasons. The first is, is that it seems to indicate, at least to me, that maybe prayer for people nowadays, or for the most part now, is more of a spontaneous thing. It's not necessarily planned in life, right? Whenever the Spirit prompts me, whenever... You know, something comes, I pray. That's when I pray most often. The other thing I find interesting is, is the 1% before meals, right? And uh, I wonder if that's a shift in our, our eating, in our culture, right? Either our food's gotten so good, we can't wait to eat it, that we don't pray, or it's gotten so bad, why be thankful for it, right? <laughs> but regardless, regardless, I think, I think that the survey does reveal something to us, though, that prayer often falls into one of two categories in our lives. It does for everybody. It's either something that we plan in that's a bit more ritualized, that's formalized. I'm going to pray before my meals. I'm going to pray before bed. I'm going to pray when I get up. Or it's spontaneous or situational. This is happening in my life. I'm wrestling with this. I just found out this news. And we respond and we react. There's these two sides to prayer. And last week, um, John looked at the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, probably the, the most famous prayer in the entire Bible. Um, and, and it's an example of one of those prayers that, at least in the past, has been used more ritualistically. It, it's, it's a said prayer. It, it's said the same way all the time. And, and we, we join together, we say it in, as the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I remember, I remember when I was in public school saying that prayer in my public school before school began. Does anybody else remember those days, said the, said the Lord's Prayer at school? Well, our culture has shifted, right? We still say the Lord's Prayer, maybe just not as prevalent. But that was last week we talked about the Lord's Prayer. When, when Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, we've seen you praying. We've seen the power. This is the connection you have with God. Teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them, gave them that, the Lord's Prayer and said, this is how you should pray. Well, this week's prayer we want to look at is a different type of prayer. It's the other Lord's Prayer in the Bible. We don't often refer to it as that, but it's found in John chapter 17. 
And it's the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that our Lord Jesus prays just as he is about to uh, face uh, Calvary. So this might fall into category of a prayer that is more situational or, or driven by current circumstance, okay? Um, and it's really an incredible prayer. It gives us a really clear and beautiful glimpse into the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we see that in the middle of facing um, the reality that is before him of the crucifixion, we see where his heart is at. We see what his focus is in his prayer. And I think there's lessons in that that we can take from it. That as Jesus prays this prayer, he prays for God's glory, he prays for the church, and he prays for those who have not yet come to believe in his name. Let's jump into the passage. I said it's in John 17. Um, I'll just read the first five verses. It's really the whole chapter, but I'll just read uh, a certain sections of it this morning. I'm going to start with verses 1 to 5. Um, after saying all these things, now let me stop there for a second, because all these things is, okay, they've just had the Last Supper together, the, the disciples and Jesus, and then Jesus has taken this last opportunity where he has all his disciples in one place before the cross to teach them some things, to remind them some things. And just before he says this prayer is John 16:33, which says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay? So here's, here's the things I want you to think about. Here's the reality. You're going to face hardship, but hey, stay strong. Okay? So after saying these things to his disciple, Jesus just starts praying with his disciples, for his disciples. He says this, um, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Wow, that's a great start to a prayer. Um, for me, as I was thinking about this and the reality that for Jesus, he's facing, he knows the cross is coming, right? He's facing the reality of what is before him. And yet, he is able to take his current life circumstance and he's able to see beyond it. And he models for us an ability to take that life circumstance and place it in God's hands and say, please use it for your purposes and for your glory. Right? Think about that for a minute. Jesus looks beyond his current reality and prays that God would use what he is about to face for the accomplishment of God's purposes and bring glory to his name. It astounds me. It forces me to ask the question in my life that when I face the trials and tribulations of life, when I feel as if hardship in my life is most pressing, when I feel as if my life is caving in all around me, when my current circumstances really are all I can see or think about, it affects everything in my life. How do I pray in those moments? And in this prayer, Jesus, I think, gives us an answer. 
and teaches us an important lesson as we listen into him with his disciples. And the lesson is this. Your moment of greatest need can also be God's greatest demonstration of power in and through you. Your moment of greatest need can be God's greatest demonstration of power in and through you. Um, certainly the cross has forever changed our world, not just for earthly years, but for eternity. Um, so we know this is true in Christ's life, that God did use the cross to powerfully fulfill his purposes. Um, I want to turn just for a second to the Apostle Paul because he also talks in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about a thorn in his flesh. Many people in the church have talked about this. We don't know exactly what that means, that he has a thorn in the flesh. It was some ailment, some hindrance that he felt to his, his life, to his ministry even. But he felt it was something that God allowed in his life to keep him humble. Um, and, and God never answered his prayer, despite the fact that Paul said, please take this away from me. God never did. And I just want to read from, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, a couple of those verses, verses 8 to, to 10. Because this is what Paul says, and, and it, it relates exactly to what, what Jesus is teaching us here. Um, so 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 8. Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Okay? In prayer, three times, Paul begged God to take this ailment, this whatever it was, away from him. And each time, this is what Paul felt God said to him. My grace is all you need. My power actually works best in weakness. So, Paul says, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, that is when I am truly strong in faith in my God. And I think that this is exactly what Jesus is modeling for us in this instance, right? And for me, I think it teaches me that, that my own prayer life needs to be a lot more about surrender and gaining perspective sometimes on my current circumstance. Um, Pastor John has said numerous times in this series already that God is more interested in our faith than in our circumstance, right? And when we pray, we so often to be uh, focused on the results, the results that we feel we need, that we want, uh, that, that we feel are going to change the circumstance, when I think God asks us, even in our prayer life, to be faith-oriented, right? As Jesus says, this is my current circumstance. Take it. Use it for your purposes and for your glory. I don't think there's anything wrong to say, please change it. Um, we all know that Jesus went and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane after this. And that was a different kind of prayer, right? We all know that hardship is very real. Each and every one of us have walked that path to some degree or another. So please don't mishear me on this, okay? Hardship is very real, but I think what Jesus is modeling is saying, our greatest weakness, our greatest time of struggle, can actually be something that God can most powerfully use in our life if we'll give it over to him and let him use it in our lives. As I said, I don't know how much you like that. <laughs> um, I don't know how much I like that. But I do know that, 
that your current circumstance might be really difficult. Actually, I imagine it, it is. It's probably brutal, depending on what you're facing. And I know for many of us, sometimes it's financial hardship, right? And the insecurities and the feelings of inadequacy that come when you struggle financially, um, it can be a heavy, heavy burden, especially in a culture that places so much false value on material wealth and, and superficial things. But it can be really, really devastating to be in a place where you feel like you are struggling so much financially. I just want to tell you um, this morning that I can think of at least two instances in my own personal life where I was incredibly blessed and touched by the generosity of someone else in my life. Where unexpectedly and out of the blue, um, I was given a, a gift. I was given a sum of money. Um, and in both these circumstances, I happened to know in that moment in time that both of those individuals who were so generous with me were in the midst of their hardest financial hardship. Do you know how powerful that is? When someone in their time of greatest need is able to come alongside and meet your need and say, you know, I, I'm struggling financially, but God calls me to be generous, right? I talked about that this morning, that we want to be generous people. And I feel God wants me to give to you. How hard is that for someone, as I said, going through that difficulty and that hardship? But how powerful is that to say, but I trust my God more than I trust my money. And so I feel like I need to give. So those two circumstances for me proved this true. I was profoundly impacted by those times in my life. I remember them very clearly in my head. Maybe your hardship isn't a failing bank account, but it's failing health, right? Think of Job in the Bible, right? There's this conversation in heaven going on. The devil says, yeah, your servant Job, he loves you, he serves you, but it's only because his life is so wonderful and perfect. If I took all that stuff away, he'd, he'd curse you, he'd turn his back on you. The only reason he loves you is because you're giving him everything good in life. So as the story goes, uh, the devil is given opportunity to have at it with Job. And if you know the story, it gets pretty, pretty bad for his family, but for himself. And at one point, he's without family. He's pretty much without his wealth anymore. Um, his own health, he has boils all over his body. He's weeping and mourning in ashes. And yet, in Job, God never turns his back on God. He never curses God. And we can all think of people in our own life, I'm sure, where we know someone has struggled with their health. And yet, in that moment, they say, but God is still good. And I thank him for all that I have. And I'm trusting him with what I do have left. Isn't that so much of, more of a powerful thing where faith comes through and God just shines in those moments because it's God's power in and through us in our weakness, right? What if your marriage is on the rocks or another relationship that you value in your life is in trouble? What if instead of just turning your back on that and saying, oh, forget it, you fell to your knees and you prayed and said, God, give me the strength, give me the ability to fight for this relationship, to work on this relationship, to make it better. Trying times can be brutal. Nobody's going to deny that. But it's in those times that we can remember this truth that God's greatest demonstration of power in and through you often comes in moments like that. 
in some sense, those, those hours of total despair, they could be your greatest hours in your life of faith. They could be your greatest hours. I guess what Jesus is saying is that your current circumstance, it's not an excuse not to pray. Rather, it is a call to place that circumstance in God's hands and say, take it, use it, direct it in my life, right? For your purposes and for your glory. This is what Jesus is modeling for us in his prayer. Um, and this is something that we can take away, I think, from, from getting insight and a glimpse into this prayer of Jesus. His concern is for God's glory. And he says, your greatest hour of need could be your greatest hour of faith. Take heart. Let's move on. Um, let's read verses 9 to 11. All right, so I'm back in John chapter 17, 9 to 11. We see a second concern in Jesus' prayer. He says, My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one of them was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. That was 9 to 12. I think in these verses, we see a concern for the church, right? It's directed towards his disciples, but the reality is, is Jesus knows the cross is going to change things, right? The Messiah is not going to be walking on the face of the earth much more. It's going to be in the hands of these disciples, right? The 12 disciples, but the larger disciples as well, the larger group of disciples, who will be forming and become the church, right? And Jesus is concerned for them. And... And in his concern, he prays for two things. And this is the lesson I think we draw from this about the church and about our need as a church. The two most important needs that the body of Christ has are protection and unity. Okay? As he prays for the church, he prays for protection and unity. Now, the protection I think that Jesus is talking about, from verse 12, we see where he talks about, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them, protected them, so that not one of them was lost, okay? Except for the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold, which I believe is the reference to Judas there. But, but it's, it's a protection of belief that Jesus says it's so central to protect the heart of belief in a Christ follower. Because Jesus knows us. He knows his disciples, right? He knows that Thomas is going to have a really hard time with the resurrection. Ah, oh, Thomas, he's going to have a hard time with this. He's going to have to see in order to believe. And oh, Peter, well, he's going to put his foot in his mouth. He's going to speak before he thinks. He's going to deny me. And then he's going to feel really bad about it. And that could just devastate him. See, he knows, he knows us. He also knows the enemy. And he knows that the enemy will do anything he can to steal belief, trust, and hope away from the heart of a believer. So Jesus says, we need to pray for protection. 
that our belief would be protected in this body, in this family. He also prays for unity, right? After all, if the devil can't get you to deny the truth, he'll try to divide the flock, okay? Unity is the other thing that Jesus prays for. And you know, everyone is so quick to say, we need more church unity. It's always true, right? Everyone is quick to say, we need to be praying for that more. That's always true. I think another important question to ask ourselves is, are we ready to work for it? Are we ready to work for unity together as the body of Christ, as the church? Because anyone who's been married for any amount of time can tell you that unity takes work, right? Even amongst two people, unity takes work, right? Remember the whole one flesh thing, right? We are like, well, why doesn't the other part of my flesh squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom and pick up after themselves, right? By the way, that's not a commentary on my own marriage. I better, <laughs> I better say that. Uh, protect my marriage and... <laughs> um, see, unity takes work, right? Unity takes work. And um, I think that's why this was so timely. I'm, I'm so thankful for Jennifer and the bridge team um, for the work that they've already put into to this survey and getting the ball rolling in this way. Because um, Jennifer referenced 1 Corinthians 12, right? Classic passage about the body of Christ, the church. How uh, There's two truths that come out of that scripture passage. One is that... Um, the greatest way we can stay united together as a church is by serving together, right? Um, when we serve together, when we use our different gifts and abilities, because we're all different, some of us are hands, feet, heads, you know, all, all those things, right? Um, when we serve together, we are most united together. And the second thing is that in God's economy, uh, unity does not mean the same thing as uniformity, right? Actually, diversity is the greatest strength that the church has, okay? When we're working together, right? Not working against one another, but working side by side with one another, using our various gifts and abilities and experiences and circumstances to work together for the sake of the kingdom. That's what the church should be about. That's what we are about, but that's what we should focus on, right? That's what people should be seeing in and through us. And I believe they do, right? But more and more, we want that unity to come through in what we do, right? So I do want to thank, I want to thank the team for getting that, that, that survey off the ground. I hope you take advantage of that. Um, I hope you really do see it as an opportunity where you can say, you know, hey, I am I, already serving. I am already feel like I'm really busy, but... This will maybe help you identify the wealth that you have in your life. As you answer some of the questions and you say, wow, some of those experiences that I had, that really difficult time, remember point one, can be God's greatest demonstration of power in and through you. It can also be something that you can come along some, some, beside somebody in who has experienced the same thing or is walking that path just a little bit after you do you know how much of an encouragement and a support you can be in those moments, right? So this is an really what the bridge is doing is it's helping us to even further our church unity here at Village Green. And that's why it's going to take everybody participating in it, right? So that we can together know where, where, what do we have to offer each other? 
it's going to be a phenomenal thing. I, I just wanted to put that plug in there for that and thank them for that work that they have already done and will continue to do. Um, our memory verse this week, um, Acts chapter 4, uh, 32 to 33, okay? Uh, pretty famous verses about the, the early church, okay? Which I think is kind of cool because this is kind of answering Jesus' prayer, right? He's just prayed for this ragtag bunch of disciples and people who are going to struggle and have hard times, but they're going to be the church. They still are the church. We're still ragtime, right? We're still, we're still trying to do this right. We still experience that hardship. But here it is, and I think we see an answer to Jesus' prayer in our memory verse, right? All the believers were united in heart and mind. Okay? They, they, were, they were focused together. They were working and serving together. They felt that what they owned was not their own. Okay? There was no sense of entitlement on anything. Right? What I have is not really my own. It's, it's for everybody, for the benefit of everybody. Okay? Every, it says everybody felt that. So they shared everything right, with each other. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was on them all. It's a great verse. That's why it's our memory verse, right? A church that serves together stays together. All right, last section. Um, let's look at verses 20 to 23 of chapter 17 as we, as we kind of wrap things up. Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. What a beautiful glimpse into the heart of our Savior, right? To think that hours before he was facing the crucifixion, he prayed for you and he prayed for me, right? all of those who will believe in their message for generations, centuries to come. For the church today as much as the church back then, right? Jesus prayed for you and for me. I find that really cool. I love that. I think we see in this <clears throat> that Jesus has a heart um, for the lost, for people to come to faith. Because the other interesting part about this is, um, well, first of all, he prays mostly for our unity, right? Here's this unity, unity, unity. It must be pretty important, right? Jesus prays for our unity. But why does he pray for our unity? Verse 21, right, says that our, he prays for our unity so that, so that the world will believe that you sent me. And here's the lesson. The ultimate purpose behind our unity as a community of faith is so that the world will believe in Jesus. So that the lost will believe and be found is so central to the heart of Jesus. 
And we as individuals and collectively as a church, we need to keep this central to our hearts as well. To always have a heart for those who have not yet chosen to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, I read a church and culture blog this week from James Emery White. John often refers to that as well. Um, church and culture blog, if you just Google that, you'll find it. If you want to subscribe, there's, uh, there's really great articles that come through. Uh, just thought I'd mention that because, uh, as I said, I know John often references these two in his messages. Um, but uh, in this, in this um, blog, James Emery White was asked by Outreach Magazine to answer a few questions um, about the future of the church, what he felt uh, related to the future of the church. And one of the questions was, what obstacles do we need to overcome as a church to be more effective in outreach in the next decade? And I just want to read, it's just a paragraph long here. This is, this is how James Emery White answered it, okay? Um, what obstacles do we need to overcome to be more effective in outreach in the next decade, so 10 years? It is ironic, he says, that the very thing the world hates about the church is its worldliness. When churches and church leaders become entangled in the web of party politics, power, greed, and sexual immorality, the world's stomach turns in disgust. So that's first. Once the church purifies itself of such things, the second task is to fill itself with our great distinctive, grace. That things like judgmentalism and condemnation are so associated with the church is an affront to the gospel. He says, grace combined with truth is what sets us apart. And it is the one thing that we have to offer the world that it doesn't already have. Next, we will have to get our own house in order in terms of observable love towards one another. The bitter blogs and the polarizations must end. And the final ingredient will be the need to have an actual passion for those who are lost. There's so much rhetoric in favor of evangelism, but little reality in terms of dying to ourselves to do what it takes to reach people. We are very much a consumer-driven church, giving in to a spiritual narcissism where the needs of the believer are paramount over the needs of those apart from Christ. Really interesting article. I don't know if you would agree with everything that he said. He actually in the blog says, please respond to what I've written. Tell me what you think some of these issues are. But I do find it interesting that in the four points that he made, that he feels the church needs to work on in order to be more effective in outreach, the final two were about unity in the family of God and having a heart for the lost. And I see that mirrored in this prayer of Jesus. Right? The last two things that we've talked about. The unity of, uh, of believers and having a heart for those who have not yet decided to follow and believe in Jesus. So let's wrap up with a couple key thoughts. The first is a quote I want to share from R.S. Torrey, who was an American evangelist. Uh, he said, When we feel least like praying is the time when we most need to pray. Okay? Our current circumstances in life can often just <sighs> cause us to live life maybe with blinders on, maybe out of necessity, right? But it can, it can crowd in so much into our life that it consumes everything, right? But we need to somehow be able to, through prayer, see beyond our current circumstance and say, God, 
take this, use it for your purposes and for your glory. No one understands that more than Jesus, right? He knows that times are going to be tough, but he also knows that his name and his glory will be with us in the church, right? And that when the church serves together, when the church protects and prays for protection for one another, and that belief is protected and built upon in God's name, we can shine a light into the world that is so bright, and that's the light of Christ. When we're protected and when we're united. And then lastly, from John 17, I just want to read verse 23 again because it's just absolutely beautiful. I hope if nothing else sticks in your head, maybe this verse is what you take with you. It says, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. It's an amazing prayer. I encourage you to read all of John chapter 17. But I hope that uh, from what we've been able to kind of delve into this morning a little bit, that you do feel encouraged and challenged in your own prayer life and that you would know that God is for you. At all times, at all places, God is for you. Next week, um, John is going to be looking at a prison break story from the Bible um, and, and talking to us about how sometimes we can be praying and really doubt that God is going to answer, and we get the answer, all right? So you don't want to miss next week. Also, um, next week, I am so excited. We are going to be launching our brand new church website. Um, yeah, there's, there's, so much, there's so many new features and tools on it where we can encourage one another, and, and we can reach out to our community through our website. Um, so you don't want to miss next Sunday, launch of our website. Make sure you're on time, though, because it's time change, okay? So let's, uh, let's pray.